Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Trevor Blake. Trevor is the author of Secrets to a Successful Startup and Three Simple Steps. He founded and served as CEO of three different medical technology companies, which went on to sell for nine-figure sums. Welcome to the podcast, Trevor. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you, Asil. I'm looking forward to it. So a mentor of yours, you start off your book this way, a mentor of yours, George Rathman, dubbed, who's dubbed the Bill, Great, Bill Gates of biotech, said right. to you, you do not know what business you're in until you get into the business. Just get started and adapt from there. So that can be kind of a shocking statement for somebody who hasn't started a business before. So tell us what that means and, and uh, what, what has it meant to you? Because you've started, I think, four different businesses, right? Right. I'm actually on my fifth right now. And, um, Are you? Yeah. When, when, the thing with that situation, which, you know, George Rothman is, is the guy who built Amgen from nothing to 60 billion and ah. then, and then okay. did another couple of great things too with companies. And I was just, I was lucky enough, he was chairman of a board that I was, I'd been asked to work for for two days a week in exchange for me being able to use the same office to build my first company. So it was a good deal for me. I worked for them for two days. I got free use of an office for three days. And, okay. and um, so I was having dinner with him and he was sort of grilling me a little bit and I was waxing lyrical about my <laughs> fantastic business plan and all the rest of it and getting carried away, not realizing that in front of me was this icon of the, of the industry. Really. And he held his hand up and he said that to me. He said, Trevor, you don't know what business you're into. You get into the business just start. And I, and I didn't understand what he meant until I actually did jump in and start. And like most people, I thought I was going in one direction. I had it very clear in my mind. I had my business plan all laid out. I, you know, I thought I knew everything that could possibly be known about my business and how it was going to make an impact. Um, and then I found within just a couple of weeks of being in business by myself that I went off in a completely different direction because an opportunity came my way that I never would have seen if I hadn't have actually started my own company. Mm -hmm. And then I, then I realized, the wisdom of what he'd been trying to tell me. And I've tried to pass that on to so many, you know, want-to-be and new entrepreneurs, you know, basically just jump, just start and figure it out from there, really. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, the landscape shifts as soon as you start to take action on something, you get to see things you wouldn't have seen otherwise. So yeah, that's so wise. Well, you also, you know, early in the book, you start off saying, basically blowing up the myth of do something you're passionate about. And um, why, is, why is the kind of passion that you think really needs to be applied to business, why is that more effective than just sort of being excited about an idea? Well, I, I think both can become great businesses, but I've not met a successful entrepreneur, and if I'm bold enough to include myself as a successful entrepreneur in that, who set out to be a successful entrepreneur. They all set out to either create something that didn't exist that made them kind of angry that it didn't exist and, or they fi wanted to fix something that they thought was, you know, a mess. There's classic examples like, you know, a, a Netflix comes out of the fact that 
the founder was really offended and upset that he got charged a late fee at Blockbusters one time. <laughs> and, and so he, he thought there should be a better way of doing this. It should be like a, a gymnasium model whereby you pay a membership fee and it doesn't matter how many times you go. And, and out of that came this amazing thing, which then, of course, get into the business. It started mail and sort of CDs in the mail or DVDs in the mail. And then very quickly that shifted to stream or streaming. And now it's, mm -hmm. you know, it took blockbusters out. So, I mean, that's a classic example, but in my uh, businesses, I'm in the um, pharmaceutical or biopharma field, I, should, I suppose I could say, you know, I was with a company where they had a treatment for a rare disease, but it sat on the shelf because they couldn't justify the investment required to bring it into the market, educating mm -hmm. thousands of physicians for such a rare disease is a very expensive process. And it kind of made me mad. And, and so I eventually I put my money where my mouth was and just decided, you know, what, I'm going to do this myself. I'll, I'll figure out a business model that works. And, and that's really how I got started. So I'm, I'm also in that category of, you know, if you find something that wants fixing, the motivation is really high and really strong. It's terrifying because, you, you know, in every case, in, in all my five businesses, I've been uniquely unqualified <laughs> to run those businesses. I don't, <laughs> I don't have the experience and I've felt out of my depth for, for, for most of the time, but I still found I figured a way to find the right people to help me fix it. And, and I think that's what I see common with other successful entrepreneurs. Of course, if you're passionate about something or you love doing something, you can build a business, but I'm not sure that it's going to be the type of business that grows fast and makes an impact quickly and also gets you financial independence quickly. I think most of those businesses tend to be sort of smaller and, and, and more sort of revenue, you know, lifestyle generating businesses rather than impactful businesses. Yeah. Rather than a sort of larger scale, multi-million dollar company. Right. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I was very intrigued by something you said in the book, and um, I, I have an obvious interest in this, and that is you say that women make more successful entrepreneur, st startup entrepreneurs than men. So at the risk of kind of making sweeping global statements like that, and, and you obviously were brave enough to do that, what's, what's behind that? What, why do you think that's, what, why is that your observation? Well, it was personal experience. Um, first and then fortunately for me my opinion or my intuition about that is backed up by all the latest surveys particularly those <laughs> that have been done since the, the banking crash in 2008 companies that are, are, are more heavily female-led have been 66% more profitable than companies that are more male-led and and then the authors of these surveys and studies try to sort of then ask the question okay why is that and they conclude that it's because women make better decision makers when alternative agendas are, are at stake they're more even-minded mm. uh, personally i don't know if that's true or not i think one of the key things particularly today when everything changes so fast you know a, a, a new piece of software a new bit of technology can completely change your business overnight for the better or for the worse you have to make almost instantaneous decisions they have to be intu intuitive decisions and there's no doubt in my mind i'm gonna i've been blessed to be surrounded by very uh, women with very powerful intuitions and i've i've tried for three decades to even get 10 percent of that <laughs> into my own life so i've improved my decision making i trust my intuition much more than i ever did and my success i think reflects that or business success reflects that but if i could bottle women's intuition i'd be a multi-billionaire and um <laughs> i just feel that that's the key thing and we're living in a time where you know, you do have to adapt or die, and therefore you've got to be brave enough to make a, a, a quick decision. But the way that traditional companies are structured with the hierarchy and this male-led sort of analytical energy, I think, I think, the, I think we're seeing in the high streets and, and, and uh, in the malls that the companies that are led that way 
aren't adapting quickly enough and are going out of business at a high rate. Whereas those mm. companies that can adapt really quickly so they can make intuitive decisions, even if all the data is not to hand, they're doing really well and they're thriving. And I think that gives female entrepreneurs a, a tremendous advantage over, over male entrepreneurs. But ideally, in, in all my companies, when I've hired teams, I don't hire employees, I hire contractors, but I try to make sure it's 50-50. I know that goes against every HR directive in the world and it's politically <laughs> incorrect, but I've I've worked for an all-male organization, you know, 49 male managers, one female manager. I've wow. worked for, an, uh, you know, 97% female division in a hospital. Mm. Neither were pleasant places to work for different mm -hmm. reasons. But I've worked for companies that, like Biogen, when I worked for Biogen, when Biogen was kind of, it came of age with its first product, um, Avanex. And so um, it was 50-50 from senior management, junior management to the sales force, 50-50. And mm. it was such a pleasure to work. And we were so effective because we had the right balance between intuitive decision-making and uh, analytical decision-making. And there was equal respect for both. So when we sat in a meeting room and went round and round and round and everything that could be said had been said, but not everybody had said it yet, you go through that process in, in corporate America, you know, we come, come up with a decision. And let's, let's say nine out of 10 voted for green with a one lone dissenting voice in the room, which was, I found was typically a female voice was said, I know it makes sense, but it doesn't feel right. Mm. Biogen was a company that respected that intuition. What do you mean it doesn't feel right? Let's, let's go back through this again. And you started to get decisions changed where intuition was respected. That's not so common, but it's becoming more common. I can't, I can't wait until we get more female-led companies where intuition becomes the, the sort of, you know, the, the foundation of the process of making decisions. Well, and part of that, I think, will be um, uh, kind of expanding the venture capital realm. I know that in your book, you talk about uh, venture capital support for companies, and that's certainly not the only avenue. But the reality is that in 2018, 2% 2 of venture capital went to female-led companies. And that's a source of frustration for me. And uh, so I'm, I'm really glad to hear you advocating for what is essentially everyone's consideration, which is, is are these companies likely to be successful? And quite, quite. And I, I, it's, it is frustrating for me too, actually, and um, for, for a lot of different reasons. But um, I'm, I think it's good that we have the science and the, and, and the data, which is what the, you know, the male-led VCs rely on. It's good that that now shows that you're better off having female leadership. Or, or, mm -hmm. or a higher percentage of female leadership over male leadership, because that will change their perception of thinking, but it's going to be a very slow process, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I shared with you before we started, my background is in pharmaceutical industry as well. And that's been my experience as well, that entirely one gendered um, management is <laughs> yeah. either way is just does not work as well as a mix. So that's a really, that's a really important thing to take note of. And you also talk about the, the intuition aspect. And I think one of the casualties of this time when people are really stressed is that we're a bit removed from ourselves because there's so much uh, anxiety going on that it's hard. I think it's harder right now for entrepreneurs to tap into uh tap into their intuition and and that of course has uh implications and so in your book you say i mean the the, the title <clears throat> the uh subtitle of the book is a recession it's secrets to a successful startup a recession proof guide to starting surviving and thriving in your own venture so this is possibly the the granddaddy of all recessions 
uh, but it's certainly a unique time. Is this a good time to start a business? Uh, there's never a better time to start a company than in a recession. Um, you know, in, in Seekers to a Successful Startup, I go into some detail as to why that is, and we probably don't have time to go through all that. But the basic thing is, you know, as a, as a, a small company in a bull market, nobody wants to listen to you. Nobody wants to know. Knock on the doors, it gets shut in your face. People say, yes, it's a great idea, thank you. Come back when, it's, when you've proved the concept. In a mm-hmm. recession, those same people that close the door in your face are putting the red carpet out and saying, I didn't mean to be so brusque back then, I do apologize. <laughs> Come along the red carpet, I'll make you a cup of tea. It's a completely different attitude because they've lost so many of their big clients and, and they need clients because they, they fear losing their jobs because you know, their performance is going to look awful, even if it's not their fault. So I find that the attitude changes 180 degrees. That's, that's a help. But also, um, because we go through this sort of d- disruptive period, the ability as a, as a startup entrepreneur to negotiate good terms, favorable terms for yourself, is so much higher in a recession than it, than it is in a, a sort of a bull market. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares that you're struggling for, for cash in the early days of a startup when, it's, when everything's going well. But when things aren't going well, they, it, it doesn't matter what you, I was talking to someone yesterday, I was doing a little bit of, of coaching and they wanted to start, it was a photography business and they didn't have a lot of money and they wanted to start, you know, get a studio, but that's expensive. And so we, we, we were brainstorming about, but all of these syndicated offices now like Regis, et cetera, they're empty. So it's quite easy to go to them now and negotiate and say, look, it looks better for you if, you, if people see that the offices are being used. So can I have it free for three months? And you negotiate much better terms and almost everybody's going to say yes to that because they want yeah. to see people, you know, they think they need traffic. They don't want to look derelict. And so you get all those opportunities in recession that just don't exist at any other time. So you have to take advantage of it. And if you look at the, you know, don't just take my word for it. Although two of my first three companies were started in a recession, 2002 and 2008. Um, uh, you know, the, the companies that make up the Dow 500 today, half of those, more than half of those were started in a recession and they didn't do too badly. No, certainly not. Yeah. Well, something you you um, you said really struck me because it it parallels my own uh, definition of impact. You said we are happy for ourselves, but what really energizes us is feeling that larger sense of purpose to be playing our part within the interconnected matrix of society and the world. What's been the impact that you've had with your companies? Well, I think we see it in different ways. So first of all, you know, you, whether it's a service or a product that you're, you're providing, it has to make a positive difference in someone's life or it mm-hmm. won't last very long and it won't get referred. Um, you won't get all the good reviews and referrals. And, and we live in a, a society now or a, or, a, or a commercial field now where, you know, it's no, it's no longer good enough just to keep a customer happy. You have to delight customers and only delighted customers will go out and tell other people about how delighted they are. And that's how the business sort of expands and how you can do it quickly these days. But it can equally be the other way around if you, if you, if you don't consider the impact that you're making with your product or service. So if your product or service doesn't improve someone's life in some way, it's not a business today. I don't think, I don't think it can, it can, it will survive very long. You know, half the, half the companies that have started fail, 82% fail for the same reason as we know. And one of, you know, one of the reasons is cash flow. And if you don't, we live in a, a, a time of get big fast. And if you don't get big fast, you're going to struggle. So you need to get big fast. You need an impactful product or service in my businesses, because I've been in biofarm, it's been providing medicines that make a difference in people's lives, not just a medicine that improves a disease, but also carries a lot of side effects, but a medicine that has no side effects and, cures the disease. And so I've been focusing primarily 
in two areas, pediatric rare diseases and, um, and oncology drugs that have low toxicity. And uh, mm -hmm. so you have an immediate impact. But of course, when you build the business model, and the one that I use is always a, what I call a model of alliances or a hub model. So I've never had an employee in, in any of my five businesses. I've used contractors and vendors because I like to hit the ground running. It's hard to grow fast when you're having to hire people and then train them. It's much yeah. easier to grow fast when you hire contractors and they know what they're doing and they get on with the mm -hmm. job. So I've taken yeah. that approach to it. And so, so what I've found is because we're making an impact, it's made all of those pieces, all of those people and all those companies in the hub really, um, energized and focused and i get i, I probably am one percent of the revenue of all of those companies but i probably get 50 percent of the attention because everybody likes to make a difference in people's lives mm -hmm. yeah well i if it would be great if you could elaborate on the hub model that you you use you've you've talked about it as not being the same as a virtual business model which uh, often companies talk about so Tell us a bit more about this hub model and how to approach a startup that way. Well, it's like most things, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So when I started my first company, I raised the money to buy the rights to the pro one of the products I think I might have mentioned earlier, a, a pediatric rare disease. And, mm -hmm. um, and I had no money left, <laughs> so I couldn't hire anybody even if I wanted to. So I had to figure out a way of building a pharmaceutical business. Can you imagine that? The arrogance of that. <laughs> um, you know, I was only a junior manager and, and now started my own company and I need, you know, I'm going to build a company, but I'm not going to hire anybody. And what I did was, of course, first of all, I tapped into the network that I knew. So I, I, I hired a consultant who could help me with the regulatory side of the business. And I hired a QA, a, QC, a quality control guy. And I, I realized that this is really a smart way of, of building a business because instead of hiring somebody who sits there twiddling their thumbs most of the time, waiting for something to, you know, a fire to put out, I could just pay for the time that I needed these people. And, and so depending on how much cash I had and how much volume was going through the business, I could scale up or scale down. And it, it had a tremendous impact on cash flow. But what I didn't expect was the impact on profit. And so after a while, it took, you know, it took me about six months to set the model up. I probably had about 14 different vendors, some of whom spent an hour a week for me and some who spent, say, you know, 10 or 12 hours a week. And, you know, so I had a manufacturer, a distributor, all, all the pieces that you need to make a, a successful business. And, um, and, and then the revenue started to flow. And, and then we started to look at the cash flow and the profit. And after the first year or, or first, first uh, two years, our net profits were 76%. And that it was, that was amazing. That's just mind blowing. That's and the, the, other, the other side to it was I found, you know, I think, I think that, challenge that a lot of startup entrepreneurs have is they do things the way they've been taught to do them. So the first thing you do is hire people and you hire an assistant and you hire someone to run finances, someone to run sales and marketing, someone to run regulatory, whatever, because they seem complicated functions. And you may have only had experience in one function. You might've come from finance or like me, sales and marketing. But what I found was that I had a pretty good overall feel for all the functions in the business, although I wasn't an expert in any of them. Um, and that gave me the confidence to kind of, go out and use my intuition to hire the right vendor who could do things unsupervised. And therefore I could focus on the important things, which was growing the business, so my, you know, the marketing, the education of physicians, finding the right key opinion leaders and all those sorts of things. I wouldn't have been able to do that if I built the company the traditional way with a hierarchical structure with the directors and associate directors and, and all the rest of it, because you end up spending most of your time dealing with human resource issues. And that's how, when I reflect on my career, the regular career, I probably spent 70% of my time doing nothing but 
focusing on human resource issues, keeping employees happy, performance and appraisal systems, all those kind of things. And, and um, the beauty of the hub model or the model of alliances is that it, after a while it starts to run itself and, and they all have their own human resource systems so you don't get involved in the minutiae of it. And the, the, when I realized that it was working well was when I took my first vacation. I was afraid to go away on vacation after about two years of starting my first company, which is, it was called Qual Medical, Quality of Life Medical. It still exists because I, I sold, I exited for $105.5 million after six years. So it wasn't a bad, it wasn't a bad run. That's um, great. And, and so anyway, about two years into that six years, I thought I need a vacation. So we had somebody in England who was ill. So I'm going to go away. And I was really scared of going away for, for such a long time, two weeks. And then I, I, I assumed in England that my phone wasn't working properly. And I hadn't set it up properly because I didn't get any calls. And so I was quite stressed when I got back two weeks later. And then I, you know, sort of get to my phone and, and uh, connect it. And there are no messages. So I started calling the consultants and saying, well, what's wrong? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, I've been in England. And they all said, oh, we didn't realize, we didn't realize you'd been away. They hadn't, they hadn't missed me. hadn't noticed wow. my absence. It was quite a shock to my ego, but it kind of proved it quite enough. When you, when you set up the hub model, then it frees you up pretty much to do all kinds of other things. And so later on, some of those other things where I started other companies, and at one time, I was running three companies at the same time from the same home office. Wow. I mean, if, for those of you that don't know the industry, the, the bio, biotech pharmaceutical industry, I mean, the number of companies that Trevor has built and from the point that he built his first one, it's a really extraordinary achievement because it's a very highly regulated industry. It's very cash intensive and it's very high risk. So you've got all three kind of operating. And uh, so the fact that you've been able to do that, I mean, I think that speaks to the value of the hub model. And so how do you, how do you work effectively with, I mean, and maybe you've just answered that question of, of uh, how do you kind of bring these folks together in a group that's going to help your company? Tell, tell us a little bit about the considerations you put into selecting the right vendor. Yeah, there's, there's several. I mean, intuition is critical to select because it's not about getting the cheapest vendor. I, I find it's about getting the one that's right for your company at that point in time. And sometimes that can be more expensive. As a small company, you don't have a lot of power to negotiate good terms because they're dealing with Pfizer and Glaxo and all the rest of it. They're not gonna, they're not gonna put you know spend a fortune on lawyers to wordsmith a contract for someone like me. So yeah, a little bit of common sense in that if they're working with those big companies, then surely their contracts have been pretty much tested by every army of, of uh, attorneys that's out there. So it's probably going to be strong enough for me. So, you know, a bit of common sense in that side of thing helps a lot. Um, intuition to find the, the right vendor and, and um, ones that probably really don't like to be supervised. They, they really, uh, you know, they, re yeah. they really want to work on their own, if you like, and they get annoyed if you start asking loads of questions. And so it changes the way that you're, you're trained in regular career to, to work. So in, in most hierarchical companies, there's really no trust. There's, there's really no empowerment, even though everybody likes to use that word and overuses it, because everyone's afraid for the job. So if I do, if I do good work and pass up my best work to my boss, my boss is probably going to make me redo it or, or, or test it or get it checked by somebody else and before he dares pass it up the chain so, mm -hmm. or, or up the hierarchy. So, so there's, there's no trust in, in those companies. But in the model of alliances or the hub model, it requires a different approach to trust. And so, so you know, you can't be on the phone every five minutes asking for updates and checking that things are getting done. You have to assume that these people know what they're doing. Uh, it takes a little bit of adjustment, I, fi I find. It took me about six months to put my ego aside and realize that I was the least experienced person in the hub. And therefore, I, I need to 
you know, let these people work. But the other thing was that it's really no different to working in the hierarchical, hierarchical business, really, because most people, no matter what their job is, whether you're in sales and marketing or rectory or you're even the CEO, most of your time is really spent managing a small group of people, five, six or seven. You know, so when I, when I was in sales and you know, national sales and marketing manager, I had seven sales managers or regional managers. And then when I was a regional manager, I had seven district managers. And as a district manager, I had seven sales reps or, or eight or five or whatever. It was but a small number of people. And, you, and if you can manage a small number of people, then you can manage the hub. So long as you slightly shift your approach away from um, sitting on someone's shoulder and, and, and dotting I's and crossing T's and step back a little bit and allow them the freedom. And I always joke with people to say, you know, the best thing I ever did that, that made the hub model successful was to get out of everybody's way. Mm-hmm. let them get on with their jobs. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, I, there's so much in what you just said that I, I'll, I'll just pick this to, to kind of, uh, go to next. Um, in the book, you talk about a balance between trust and verify. It's that quote of uh, trust in God and tie up your camel, um, <laughs> which I always find quite funny, but you, you really talk about both aspects. And I, I wonder if we can explore that in the context of impactful leadership, which I kind of think of as a, a higher level of leadership where you're actually bringing people together to have the impact that you want to have. And can you speak to, to that a little bit? Yeah, I think that it's a maturity thing. So, you know, I'm, uh, I didn't start my first company till I was 42. So, you know, you can probably work out how old I am now. Um, I, th- I think I'd matured enough whereby I, I didn't need the, the uh, sort of ego boost every day. I've been told that I, how good I am or, or I've done a good job or anything like that. And I d- also felt that with the hub model, people don't need that. They need direction, mm-hmm. not supervision. And so, right. so when you get to that sort of, you get more of a mature, it's almost like a senior management group rather than a junior management group, but because these people all know what they're doing and they, you know, they, they have, a dozen clients, probably out of that dozen clients, 10 of them are really, you know, ho-hum type of businesses. And they're, they're, they're doing what they do on a daily basis. It's, it's what they do is what they get paid for, but it might not be very inspiring. But when you work with a startup and you have somebody who's got, who's full of enthusiasm, who says, look, I think we can, well, let's take my current company now. Okay. So, so when I started this company and I talked to the vendors that I wanted to work with in this company, they all thought I was insane. Okay. Cause what I said to them was, <laughs> we're going to make a, low toxicity in fact the zero toxicity chemotherapy and they say you're crazy because chemos are old are, are in the past we were going on to gene therapy it was then and then and angiogenesis and then something else and now it's immunotherapy but i said mm-hmm. you know chemotherapies don't work because of the toxicity but if you take the toxicity away you can do really smart things with them and that's as much of the science that i knew and so i got these scientists together and they said well this isn't going to work but boy this is going to be fun to try and figure it out and they got so jazzed about it. And, you know, it took us seven years, but we figured it out. And, and we ended up with 68 inventions out of 5,000 that we played with. And those yeah. 68 inventions, you know, they're all low toxicity. And they all have really, at the higher doses, have really interesting impacts on cancer cells that no one's seen before because you never, no one's ever been able to give high doses. And that's kind of the holy, holy grail of cancer treatment is effective and non-toxic yeah it's, it's funny though i still get pushback especially from potential investors about yes but it's chemotherapy and and um but it, but now we have the data to back it up so first of all the pushback is that's impossible you don't know what you're doing then we did the preclinical data and the answer was it's too good to be true you must have done something wrong and now we're in human trials so in phase one of our, our lead compound 
and we haven't seen any side effects and we've already got a 40% disease stabilization. Well, you know, and I know that disease stabilization in phase 1A is always is pretty low or not non-existent. It's something you mm-hmm. don't really spot because your, your, your goal is to achieve something different. So to be seeing this already is, is, is caused a major impact. And then mm-hmm. finally, all those people, like I say, you know, all those people who close the door in your face, then opening the door and asking me in for a cup of tea now, which is, <laughs> is sort of funny. <laughs> Um, right. But I think I think being in something like that, starting off with something that's brand new, like a like a Netflix or a, a you know or an, an iPhone. What came before the iPhone? The um, the, the the little the flip, uh, the flip phone. Yeah, so it was something like that. You know, but being involved in something that's never been done before, I think jazzes everybody, and you get much more time from those consultants than you probably pay for. Um, you know, they're really they've they've really um, bought into this whole thing, and now of course we're seeing the data we all had doubts, but now, now that the data's kind of backing us up, you know, that, that um, level of excitement and enthusiasm is sky high. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I, I'm interested in how that hub model might've evolved. Did you ever have a more conventional sort of employee type company or have, have you managed to run that hub model with uh, consultants over a longer period of time? Yeah, the whole time. So it was wow. so successful the first time. And I realized, you know, when I was telling you about going away and people hadn't noticed my absence, I realized that this is a plug and play model. And so, so we, I started off with just one product. And then, like, like we say, I was in the business. So while I was in the business, I saw an opportunity to purchase the rights to three other products. that were They were in different areas of, of disease uh, treatment, but they were similar in, similar in profile, if you like. And... Um, and then, so I went, so it took me 18 months to get my first investment of 2.1 million. It took me six weeks to get my second investment because they could see the hub model working and I raised mm-hmm. 28 million and wow. I went and bought the rights to, to those products. So, and I just plugged and played them. I just, I just talked to the same vendors, the same people and said, and you know, we need to change the packaging. We need to store it here. We need to price it in this way. And that was it. And so mm-hmm. it was just like plug and play. And the thing just it ran so smoothly. The, the only thing I noticed was, you know, changes in packaging really yeah. and so so when i sold that first company um i kept the same i kept the same group of of consultants and you know added some more of that i needed for different things and i've just kept doing that i'm still working with some of the original contractors um that i started especially regulatory and finance that i started with in 2002 and um the, the ironic thing is that, that you know my finance people are in texas i've never ever met them <laughs> Uh, that's amazing. I know I've, I've worked in that realm of being a contractor and had have had many clients who I have never met in person. So it's kind of an odd thing, but you just it just becomes the norm. So um, especially now we have so many options for communication. What it, was something else you said, and this is from early on in the book. You talk about how forty percent of Inc. five hundred companies have never prepared, or sorry, rather. 40% have prepared a formal business plan. The remaining 60% therefore have not, and only 12% did formal market research. So in your book, you say you absolutely have to have a plan, and yet the success of those companies would suggest that maybe that's not absolutely necessary. So what do you say to that? Except that, so let's define what the plan is. So I think... 40% of those people, I've never met them, of course, but 40% in the survey wrote a business plan. So what? What's a business plan going to do for you? Absolutely nothing. It's not even going to get read. It probably sits on the shelf or gets thrown in the trash can a year later. So my inter- my um, definition of a business plan is not, not the plan itself, but the process. 
And so the business plan process, I think, is really essential. So you, you, you have your winning idea. You have a sense of who your customer is. You have to leave your desk and get out and talk to the potential stakeholders, the customers, the distributors, the manufacturers, and share that idea with them. Ask them what they think and listen to the feedback and start making adjustments to the business plan that's in your head, if you like. So for me, the business plan isn't a 90-page document that sits on a desk. A business plan is a 90-page document that's in your brain so that you know your business, or at least at the start, inside out, but most importantly, that you know um, if you build it, the customer will come. And so the uh, sort of proof of the pudding is in the eating of that uh, is that it's also shown that investors typically only investing in um, business plans or only show an interest in business plans and go to the next stage with business plans that have the majority of the effort in the business plan focused on customer feedback. Mm. You don't have mm-hmm. to have pre-orders and you don't have to have a proof of concept, although both of those help immensely with raising money. And that's what sure. I recommend people do, but uh, it's, it's the process and the process never starts or stops. It's, it's constantly evolving. And so I'm doing a, I'm going through the business plan process all the time, especially in drug development because data is coming in on a, on a weekly basis and it changes, it changes your direction, your strategy, what you need, what you don't need uh, constantly. And so it's the mentality of having the business planning process that's that's the most important thing, but the business plan itself, the most boring part of it, which is writing the whole thing out. I've never seen that really be necessary for anyone. I've had a couple of shocking moments where investors have said to me, can we see your business plan? And I've had to frantically write it or, or can we see your marketing <laughs> plan? And I've had to make it up because um, too much is in your head really. Um, but, but that's what it is. It's the process that's so important. And I think people, I think a lot of entrepreneurs get caught up in the plan not the process. And so they think it's about writing an MBA document that's going to impress an investor. It's not that at all. It's about finding out what the customer is going to think of what you're going to, the service or product you're going to provide and reacting to that and showing that proof of concept or proof of data to, um, to investors. But on top of the business plan process, I think probably the most important piece is, is the proof of concept. And I think that's mm-hmm. critical today. I think that's critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I mean, my own experience really agrees with you on that, that writing a business plan is more important than having one. And there's that Eisenhower quote about plans are useless, but planning is invaluable or some version of that. And it's the process of really sorting that through that gives you clarity and and, uh, it has to be informed by potential customers. So otherwise it has limited validity. Um, well, the last question I have before we get to the rapid round, Trevor, is um, I love that you ended your book with the fun mentality as, as part of the last chapter. So tell us about that. Why is that important as, in a startup? It's, it's, a, it's, important, it's important in life, not just in the startup. It's, <laughs> it's a philosophy of life. So I, I don't believe in vision, vision values and wasting time on things like that. And I know that goes against I'm a bit of a contrarian, so um, as, you, as you may have noticed, but, but I do believe in a mantra, you know, so I, the mantra for all my companies, which all of my uh, consultants and vendors also kind of have adopt, adopted over time is make a positive difference in someone's life, have fun doing it, and you'll share in the material and other rewards that come naturally as a result of creating that energy. It's all about anything, everything in life is energy, including a, a, a small business, the, the energy of everyone around the hub model. And if you put that energy in the right direction, then it automatically becomes fun. And once things become, if you're having an impact and you're having fun, you just have to, then you, at that point, you can pretty much surrender to it and just, just let it build itself and let it, let it have its impact. And that's kind of been my philosophy a little bit. If something isn't fun, and I know a lot, I know a lot of entrepreneurs who are working 
you know, 10 hour days, they're really stressed and they're on the second mm-hmm. or third marriages and it's not fun at all. And it's because they've got it, they've, they've started wrong. They, 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 could, they can change their business model. Definitely that would help. But they also are indoctrinated into ways of thinking, ways of working that take all the fun out of it. And so you know, one of the things I like to do is try and put a little bit more fun back into it. I, like, I've never worked more than five hours a day and I never would. I do that on purpose because it improves peak brain performance, but it also gives you a balanced life. Success and balance should go together. This should be a joyful experience, not a stressful experience. And I see so many entrepreneurs having the opposite experience. So I think when you start to introduce the fun element, which is basically, you know, work two solid hours, but then go for a walk. You know, that, that just adds that little element on. Don't have a, don't, if you're going to have a meeting, everybody, you can't do that today, but everybody go outside and sit under a tree and let's talk about it while we're having a pizza under a tree or something. You have to start, right. start introducing those elements to it because you can get burned out really quickly in your own company. Um, yeah. you, you know, you don't have a coffee pot and people hanging around. You don't have um, a lunch room and things like that, you know, which is where, where people get their sort of relaxation time in a, in a typically structured company. But in, um, in a hub model, definitely, you can get burned out very quickly because it's, it's really you're the conductor of an orchestra and, um, and it can be a lonely experience. So you have to introduce elements of fun just to keep sane and also to keep a balanced life. Mm, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all of those aspects. And the, the one about working, you know, five hours a day and the, all the data behind that, it's, it's a tough one to convince this culture of, but it's, uh, it's a compelling argument, certainly. Yeah, well, you know, I, I proof of the pudding is in eating of it. So I'm on my fifth company. <laughs> my first three companies sold for a combined enterprise value of 300 million. I've been married, happily married, 38 years. So I think there's some, <laughs> there's some evidence yeah. that I can provide that says, you know, maybe, maybe just try thinking differently for a little while and see how it works out for you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And on my, on my website, actually, there's a free download. There's no strings attached to it. It's just, I think this is so important today. And I wrote this and made it available before we all went into splendid isolation. So it's highly pertinent for splendid isolation. And it's called the practical magic of the five hour workday. And you can just download it from my website. Mm, that's great. Um, I like that splendid isolation. <laughs> um, well then, uh, Let's uh, move on to the, the to the rapid round. So I always ask three questions about impact at this point. And the first one is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Oh, that's a tough one because there's so many answers to the, to the one thing. For, for me, because of the business that I'm in, getting and, and you know because pharmaceutical business gets a gets a bad rap and, and often often it's justified i think and uh, particularly with pricing and things like that um mm. but to get a letter from a from the parent of a patient that says who would have thought that a pharmaceutical company could be trusted and who would have thought that a pharmaceutical company would go to such extent to help me and my baby daughter mm. that makes a huge that for me is impact yeah that's very moving yeah What's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Uh, I've listened to my wife. <laughs> yeah, truly, I'm, um, not, I'm, not, I'm not joking. So, so, so if, I have a, if I have a difficult decision to make, I'll always ask Lynn, what do you think? And she, has, she doesn't understand. We don't talk about work. So when, when I'm not working, uh, we, just, we, we make dinner together or go for walks or play with the dog. So we don't bring work into the home life. It's very important not to do that, I think. And uh, so, so she has no idea what I do when I'm in my office, really. She, she never asked. But I will often ask her, what do you think of this person? And she'll say yes or no. And I'll, mm-hmm. I'll be indignant. I'll say, well, how can you possibly know? You've never met them. I like the guy. Da, da, da. And she'll say, well, why did you ask? And I'll say, right. okay, right, I get it. 
And so I, when, I've, when I've not listened to her, it's cost me both uh, energetically but also financially. So I, I, yeah. I've listened to my wife. I've learned to say yes, dear, and uh, I've listened to her. So if she, say, if she says, she gives me the thumbs up or the thumbs down. Usually that's enough for me. That's great. Well, the last question is, what's one insider piece of advice you'd share with another um, startup entrepreneur who's asking themselves, how can I have impact? How can I contribute in the larger world? Well, for most of them, they they haven't started. And for me, the best piece of advice is, is don't wait, start, figure it out. Um, everyone can figure it out. And we live in an amazing time where technology can pretty much educate you on any aspect of a company in a, in a matter of seconds. You know, you can sit at your computer and can engage the whole world. Whereas you, you know, the old way of doing things was build locally, get some good referrals, go, go sort of regionally. If things go well, get an investor, go nationally. That's not no longer true. You can basically start a company today and tomorrow you can have you know a million customers all over the globe. It's it's a, it's so easy to make a major impact now. As long as you've got a good product, a good attitude, you know, all the rest of it. Um, yeah. so for my advice to everybody is I don't I think history will look back at this time where the old structures are breaking down and, and new ways of doing business and new ways of, of living are, are coming back. I, I think history will look back and say there's never been a better time to reinvent yourself and either start for the first time or, or restructure the company that you've been building and struggling with and change your work style and all the rest of it. I think this is an amazing time to reinvent ourselves. Yeah, I agree. I think there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of potential in this time and it's up to us to really step into it. So thank you for sharing everything that you have today, Trevor. And I know that your book and what you've shared today is a tremendous support for entrepreneurs, startups, and people who, as you said, are looking at how can I perhaps adjust at this point and, and uh, adapt to the changing environment. So thank you again for, for being here and uh, sharing all of that with us. My pleasure. It was fun. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, everything's through my website. So there's books and courses and blogs and, and all the things that we do these days. So all my proceeds go to cancer research and development. So I, I don't do this for my benefit. I do it because it's fun and I'm, I like to have an impact, but also it, it, you know, it's doing the right thing, but also anyone who gets involved, whatever cent they spend goes to cancer research and development. So everybody wins. So my website has everything. It's trevorgblake.com. Great. And I'll include all that in the show notes as well, along with a uh, link to your book. So Trevor, thank you again for being here and for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you, Ursula. I really appreciate it. Good, great questions. And that was fun. Thank you for joining me. If you want to discover more about your impact, you can schedule a business impact assessment with me. That's 75 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Just email me at Ursula at workalchemy.com to schedule your business impact assessment. It's my gift to you. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of leaders like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.